0: views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Fultpac Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions.
1: Welcome to the Wolf Den. Uh, I'm Dan David, and I'm here with the pack as usual. We have Tick, our producer, Carl, our sound engineer, God help us all. And Reed is going to join us today because we have a very, very special guest. Somebody that I'm very excited to have on our show, and I hope will be a reoccurring guest because you just can't get enough information in one podcast from Professor Paul Gillis. Professor Paul Gillis uh, is a professor at the Guanghua School of Management, Peking University in Beijing. He's an MBA doing business in China, managing an MNC in China and financial statement analysis. Uh, the reality is that, you know, outside of working for Cooper until 2004 in a 28-year career, Paul, I would say, is objectively, in my mind, not even subjectively, uh, the foremost go-to guy for accounting in China Uh, IFRS standards versus GAAP standards. He is is the go-to guy not only for um, people in his field, the PCAOB, where he was a standing uh, committee member on the advisory board, but for Congress, who has him come and testify uh, for the U.S.-China Security and Economic Commission, I think twice, Paul. Uh, And, I mean, there's so much published work that Paul has done we could spend an hour and a half going over it. So we're not going to do that. I want to talk to Paul about who Paul is because generally we're reading his work. We're enjoying his work. And quite frankly, if you're a long investor or a short seller doing business in China and you're not following Paul, you're not a very serious person. Uh, So follow him on Twitter and get some knowledge. So let's, let's go with that. And let me welcome Paul to the show. Welcome Paul.
2: Thanks Dan. Glad to be here.
1: So, Paul, you know, you've heard what I've had to say about you, and and, and we've talked a bit in the past. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say we're close, um, you know, <laughs> distance-wise or, or otherwise. We know of each other. We've been on panels together. Uh, you moderated a couple of panels that I've been on. Uh, I don't think any fights broke out in those. You're a pretty good moderator, I guess. <laughs> it was close between Mitch Nussbaum and I once. Uh, but you, you – really haven't talked about that I've heard in any of your uh, podcasts about what brought you to accounting, what brings you to the business, how did you matriculate to China, and and your story as Paul Gillis. We were talking a bit about you before the show, and I'm even more endeared to you now that I know that you were an all-star linebacker back in your day. Uh, So why don't we start there?
2: Well, you know, I think my, my story of my career probably goes back to when I was uh, uh, in high school, my real goal was to be an Olympic skier. And uh, I, was, I grew up in Colorado and, uh, and skied a lot. And I, was in, uh, I grew up in Colorado Springs, which uh, uh, doesn't have actually great skiing, but they actually at the Broadmoor Hotel had a little ski area that was the iciest ski area in Colorado and a wonderful place to train. So I trained there and and then I, I went to I went to college intending to to ski and try to make the US ski team. But about that time technology overtook my my ski career. That's about when I was in, in starting starting in college, it was everyone was used to be skiing on wood and metal skis. And then they went to fiberglass in the in the early late, late sixties, early seventies. And what happened when that happened is speed suddenly went from 50 miles an hour to 70 miles an hour. Yeah. And I found out I had too many brain cells to compete at <laughs> 70 miles an hour. Yeah. And about that time, I discovered accountancy. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the story. I found I, I liked accounting. It was something that, that I was good at. And so that launched my, me in that direction. And I ended up joining Pricewaterhouse after I graduated from university stayed there for 28 years they eventually wow. sent me to China and that that kind of started the China, China that really started the China part of my career although I'd really started working on China about 10 years before that I helped out a, a small golf course designer that had gotten a contract to build a golf course in Beijing and the problem was they couldn't figure out how to get paid and I That's had no still idea a how to do it either but I knew how to it's still a problem. And so I, I, I contacted a guy that I'd actually recruited to go to China out of, out of Colorado State, and uh, he solved the problem for them. That kind of started me on a path that ended up with me actually moving to China in 1997. Wow. I arrived the, the day of the Asian financial crisis hit. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. So I got a bit of wow. a- pr- Auspicious timing, yes, exactly. When I came to China, Pricewaterhouse was a small four offices, wow. uh, which actually wasn't too small. But they saw that China was going to be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. And what was happening at that time was China it was recovering after Tiananmen Square and was starting to take off in the early 90s. China really is really when China's opening up began was really about 1994. And then the uh, the Soviet Union was collapsing. And so the accounting firms suddenly were faced with, with these wealth of opportunities. They had the China market opening up that looked like it was going to be big, and then the, the, the former Soviet Union market was opening up and was looking like it was going to be huge as well. So each of the big accounting firms basically divided up the responsibility for the world. And in the case of Price Waterhouse, the, the Brits took on Russia and the former Soviet Union, and the Americans took on China. So I got sent to China as part of the team to help build China. Again, we had uh four offices and about 500 people. Today they've got oh dozens of offices and and something like 10,000 people in China. Right. So I mean it, they were right. It was a great opportunity and it really exploded.
1: Yeah, Russia not so much. But so <laughs> I, what interests me in what you just said is it seems like the accounting firms got together and divided up the world. <laughs> it <laughs> sounds like they're taking a page out of the you know, investment banking book. But I, what did what did that look like? I mean, I, why wouldn't they all just go into the same markets and compete? Why did they decide to divide up the world? Well,
2: well, that was that was Price Waterhouse. I mean, all of the big firms came to China, and all of the big firms Eventually. Came to the former Soviet Union. But the way they divided it up uh, be, among themselves was different. For example, we merged with Cooper's and Lybrand not long after I arrived in China. Cooper's and Lybrand had done the exact opposite of what Price Waterhouse had done. That is they had given the the Americans had taken on the the former Soviet Union and the Brits took on China. Uh, so that had to get sorted out after the merger, and it did it ultimately did get sorted out with basically the Pricewaterhouse model of the Americans taking on China. They didn't give it to Hong Kong because at the time, they, they, they'd given it to Hong Kong a couple times to run. But Hong Kong was, was not actually run by Chinese. Hong Kong was right. really British until 97. And then and eventually, they've now all got, uh, got Hong Kong Chinese partners, senior partners. But it had been British-run for many years, and it was a long time before Hong Kong had their first local senior partner in any of the big four firms. Well, Uh, It didn't really happen until after 97.
1: I think I understand now what you meant by dividing up the world. It was really more of a geopolitical issue in that, yeah, it didn't really make much sense for the Americans to kind of set up a big shop in Russia because we were so adversarial for so many years. People don't really realize in the front of their brain, actually, that China and Great Britain were really at odds. And, and China, yeah, I think, still
2: quite hostile.
1: Yeah, I think China still kind of blames them. And now they've incorporated the rest of the world into this blame at their hundred years of humiliation that they call it. And and Britain was at the forefront of that. So I guess it does make sense.
2: Yeah, and, and Hong Kong and Hong Kong has been a been a real thorn in China's side because, you know, they 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 I think they still have bad feelings about the negotiations for the handover. And then now Britain is getting somewhat embarrassed by what has been going on in Hong Kong as Hong Kong begins to accelerate its integration with China, and I think those tensions are probably as high as they've ever been. And now that, you know, the UK has said that they want to you know, it basically provide an escape for people from Hong Kong who yeah. want to, to leave Hong Kong. The U.S. may do the same thing, but none of those are going to be very popular with, with China.
1: Oh, we should do it anyway. But so while we're talking about Hong Kong and we've we've let's just stop on this issue for a second. I mean, what it's so pressing in the news and in our minds, at least it was before COVID. What's your take on
2: Hong Kong these days, Paul? Well, you know, I've been, I've been uh, visiting Hong Kong. I've got a home in Hong Kong. Sell it. Not able to go there now uh, because I'm in, I'm in China. If I go to Hong Kong, uh, I, I have to go into quarantine for two weeks in Hong Kong when I arrive in Hong Kong. And then I have to quarantine for two weeks to get back oh, into China. So I'm not going to go there until the, the quarantine requirements are lifted. And that probably is at least six to nine months out from now, I think, which will happen. But what I have seen over the the years since the handover took place, you know, and the handover basically was 1997, when Hong Kong's lease on on Hong Kong ex- with China from China expired, and they turned it back over to 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 China to operate as a special administrative region where it was supposed to be self-governing. Mm-hmm. That hasn't quite worked out that way. But what we, what I think I, what I saw observed was a couple of events happened along the way. One of the, one of the first ones was that the Chinese, China became much more prosperous and much more important to Hong Kong. So you started to see in uh, stores in Hong Kong that they would accept RMB, often at parity, even though the RMB at the time was worth less than the Hong Kong dollar they would accept renminbi as as currency in order to sell to the mainland Chinese.
1: When did this start happening?
2: This would have started happening, uh, oh, probably not long after handover. Mm -hmm. Then there were two really seminal events that I saw in Hong Kong that really changed the attitude of the Hong Kong people. One was when the yuan strengthened so that it actually became more valuable than the Hong Kong dollar. Mm -hmm. That was, a, that was a huge blow to the ego of Hong Kong. The other big blow was when United Airlines started uh, a nonstop flight from San Francisco to mm-hmm. Beijing. And that has been a big blow to Hong Kong from that standpoint.
1: It seems really odd that you would say something right now that seems so minor and trivial that there just became this direct flight From San Francisco to Beijing was like a bomb going off in Hong Kong and a real wake up call. But they were right because, you know, now it's now that's kind that was one leg of cutting them off from being as important as they were. And I mean, now I think all the other legs are cut off. I mean, where where do you think they stand today?
2: Well, the big advantage that Hong Kong still has is their tax system. Uh, because individual tax rates are very low in Hong Kong uh, compared to the mainland. You know, 17% tax versus a 45% tax on the mainland. So you still see the investment bankers and the lawyers prefer to live in Hong Kong because the tax rates significantly lower. From a quality of life standpoint, that has become pretty much the same. And in fact, I know, many people I know who have been transferred out of Hong Kong to the, to the mainland say they like living on the mainland better. There's, there's simply there's more space to spread out and do things. If you want to play golf, it's a lot easier uh, to do on the mainland than it is to do in, in Hong Kong. And the, the, a lot of the other advantages of the... you know One of the things that happened in Hong Kong, too, after the handover, was it became a lot less British and a lot more American. And the, the, the you could see that in the number of expats in Hong Kong. The number of British expats dropped and the number of Americans became the majority pretty quickly. Mm. And that's that's a trend, I think, that has continued. And what you see now, though, if you're going into a bar in Hong Kong, it used to be you'd see a, a British bartender, but now you, you're going to see a, a local Chinese. Yeah. And that's changed the culture quite a bit.
1: N- now we're looking at, really the tax advantage being the main reason to be in Hong Kong. And, and yeah, I get that like being in mainland China versus Hong Kong, as far as, you know, a spatial quality of living, because, you know, Hong Kong is just a city carved out of a jungle, basically. I mean, it's, yeah, it's
2: tough. I mean, I like Hong Kong. It, it's, 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 an interesting city. It's, you know, it, it's, it's got a lot, it, it, English is a little easier to get along in just English in Hong Kong. Yeah, Although the standard of English in Hong Kong has gone down. Over the last couple of decades, where it's gone up in the mainland, it's gone down in Hong Kong. And the it used to be that
1: uh, the I found prided themselves on speaking Cantonese instead of Mandarin back when. Yes, and and now it is almost strictly Mandarin.
2: Yeah, you want to you want to speak. I mean, Cantonese is 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 used a lot for you know if you're talking like speaking with a taxi driver and things like that. They prefer to speak Cantonese and the arts. Music and, and that tend to still be done in Cantonese, but Mandarin is becoming the language of business if it's not English.
1: But, you, you know, you touched on something that uh, the, the difference they have now is a 45% tax rate in China. Fuck me. I mean, <laughs> you know, no wonder they're, they're, they're yeah, so that, institutionalized into cheating on their taxes.
2: Well, this is, I think I've, I've been arguing this for years is that China's tax rate is too high and China's tax enforcement is too low. Right, and so what you what you find is that most Chinese businessmen will set a salary equal to the corporate tax, which gets them to the corporate tax rate of 25 percent. Right, and and then they take and everything else is paid in benefits that are not taxed. Right, Uh, so their vacations and their and their homes and everything else are provided by the employer. Now, all that would be is technically taxable, but the tax authorities are not very good at enforcing the rules on that. And I've argued for a long time that what China needs to do is drop its tax rate, and and then enforce the system more aggressively. If they did that, I think they could raise the same or more revenue, at uh, at a much lower tax rate and a much fairer system, rather than what they've got right now, which is which is a bit of a I, I think it's really a disincentive to to doing things. But it's
1: generational. I mean. You know, when we first started doing business in China, and and believe it or not, I'm, you know, I don't know if you remember our story is that we were, we were long investors before we were ever short Mm -hmm. sellers. And we kind of fought kicking and screaming going into uh, shorting, but nobody took us seriously until we, we actually made money shorting. But you'd always hear that there are two or three sets of books for every Chinese business, every one of them. And you think it's a joke. Yeah. Because you could say the same thing about the U.S., but it is not a joke. There definitely is a different set of books. I mean, the joke is, you know, one for the government, you know, one for you and, you know, one for, your, for the mistress and the wife, you know? Yeah. But it's institutional to kind of cheat on your taxes in China because nobody's going to pay that 45%. And that includes, like you say, the people that are enforcing it, because if they enforce it, they've got to enforce it on themselves as well. And I don't think they want to do that. Yeah. Well, and a lot of
2: the government work, I think the, one of the biggest obstacles to uh, dropping the tax rate is that it's just viewed as if you, if you allowed the rich to pay lower taxes, or in theory, subjecting them to a lower tax rate, they're afraid that it would be politically very unpopular with the masses to do that. Of course, the masses all know that nobody's actually, only foreigners have been paying the, the highest rates. And of course, when I came to China, there weren't any locals that paid taxes. All the taxes were paid by, by foreigners. They were the only ones that were subject to individual income tax. Right. Uh, not by system, but because nobody made that much money. Yeah. Uh, and now you've got a lot of, and now most everybody's into the system where they're paying some, some income taxes. And so, but I think there still would be opposition to dropping the tax rate. Just like there's been opposition to having anything larger than 100 yuan banknote. Because the government doesn't want to have, they've got they've got printed and in storage someplace thousand yuan banknotes, which would be about a hundred and fifty dollar note, but they don't want to put them out because they're afraid that the public will think that they've got hyperinflation if they need such big bills. Yeah. So I I was at the bank earlier today and it was interesting. Somebody was in there with a suitcase full of money, which you see quite frequently here. Wow. And you know, you if I look in a suitcase full of money, I can estimate pretty accurately how much is in there. Well, how and much a was in there? Big briefcase will handle about three, about three million. You want? You're kidding me. Yeah, five hundred grand. You know, you put that into one into a nice, a case can carry about about three million.
1: They are the greatest savers in the world. I mean, yes. they they really are. They sit on hordes of cash or assets because I mean they're just waiting you know, for catastrophe and they're going to be ready for it as an individual. They're, they're the greatest savers in the world. Unlike us where we're, we're pushed into investing into the stock market because, you know, yeah. you know, let's face it, it costs money to have a bank account. Now I don't care how much money you have. it, it Even opportunity is a cost. If you're poor and yeah. disenfranchised, it actually costs you money to have a bank account where, you know, back in the day, even 20 years ago, you could get three percent interest or things of this nature. And I think it I think it really contributes to our wealth gap here that's untalked about is that the, the poor and disenfranchised here in the United States are not investing in the stock market. But there's no place else to put your money anymore. Not the banks, not in real yeah. estate because of the charges you have. So it really creates even more of a wealth gap. And I'm seeing in China, like China is interesting because I mean, maybe you could verify this. Maybe I'm just way off. But I feel like in 2005, maybe, or before, right, nobody used a credit card. Everything was cash. And they skipped right over yeah. credit cards to paying with your phone.
2: I, don't, I, I never carry a wallet with me anymore. In fact, most of the people I deal with won't take cash. Right. And, and they certainly aren't going to take credit cards. What they take is, is a QR code on my phone which is linked to my bank account and takes the money straight out of my bank account and puts it straight into their account.
1: That's wild.
2: And uh, I mean even when I even if I go out and play golf, I tip the caddy with a with a payment electronic payment from my phone straight to her phone.
1: We had the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s starting out with diner's club and that whole credit card era of of 40 50 years yep. before we yep. we're not even switched over to Completely electronic on the phone, like they are. They skipped credit cards completely. They did. They
2: skipped credit cards. They skipped landline telephones. <laughs> you know, and uh, wow. and they really skipped. They skipped computers. You know, they they went straight to cell phones and smartphones. That revolution has been kind of amazing to watch just in and of itself. You know, Nokia, which uh, was the number one phone mm-hmm. in the whole right. world for a number of years, mm-hmm. basically went completely out of existence because they did they thought the smartphone was a fad. And yeah. and they, they were they were big in China. Now they're not in China at all. Hey their 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 toilet paper and tire business is still big. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do make and they make rubber boots.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: that's interesting. I I don't I don't think I knew that. Uh, I I didn't. Yeah, I, I will now think about that every morning. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Is this Nokia? Uh,
3: I have to ask, when you pay on your phone, is it Alipay? Is it different app?
2: There's two there's two primary systems. I use both Alipay, which is owned by Ant, which was affiliated with the Alibaba group. And then the other one is WeChat, a, which is part of Tencent.
1: Still, still right. are affiliated. <laughs>
2: yeah, let's talk about yeah, that thing. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, the Ant Financial IPO that got delayed. I mean, I've got my own problems yeah. with the Ant Financial IPO to begin with in that, you know, going back to Alipay in the early 2010s, 11s, whatever, Jack Ma had made a deal with Yahoo. And, and Yahoo had Alipay and then he comes back and says, well, you know, big misunderstanding here. We can't, the government's not going to allow a foreign company to, to have a payment processing business. So I'm going to have to buy this back from you. I'm going to be nice enough to give you a little bit of profit here.
2: So here you go, but fuck off. And Yahoo. He gave him $20 million for a business that was worth about $5 billion at the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. That's a okay. nice discount. And, he, and and then and then Jack Ma comes back even even to Alibaba and says, "Yeah, but we're not going to be part of Alibaba either and and give the shareholders of the Alibaba IPO in the United States part of what is now Ant Financial Alipay." Yeah. And he he didn't even tell yeah. the board until after it was done, which, you know, right. It, I I can't fathom how they're not being punished for that from our end
2: not their end i thought the prospectus was kind of amusing because what they said in the prospectus they blew over that whole transaction that took place in 2012 yeah where jack ma basically you know in in, in the words of many basically stole alipay out of alibaba group and uh, in uh, my words yeah you know yeah. it was it was an amazing it was an amazing amount of pushback about that they eventually settled I made a settlement on that, and then they they revised that at the time of the Alibaba IPO. But it was the things that, that Jack Ma had said, you know, foreigners can't own a payment processor like uh, Alipay. Obviously, the thing, the things he said should have made it impossible to do an IPO later. Correct. That's uh, my point. Yeah. To, and then what they did in the prospectus, all they did was they said that, that Alipay was spun out of the Alibaba group In in 2012, which was not exact, not at all what happened. No, and uh, it wasn't a spinoff. It was it was it was taken out, and it was taken out by Jack Ma. And then there were negotiations to to give uh, the Alibaba Group some continuing holdings. You know, the original deal was was actually one of the more brilliant deals, I think, where where Jack Ma basically sold 40 percent of the Alibaba Group to Yahoo for a billion dollars. Yeah. And he used that billion dollars, yep. uh, which seemed like an outrageous amount of money at the time. But he used that billion dollars to basically run eBay out of China. Right. Uh, because eBay was, it had a foothold, and, and, but he basically gave away what they were doing. And eBay said, you know, hey, we, we're all for competition, but we're not for, for suicide. So we're not going to give it away. And then eventually they just gave up and and moved out which gave him cornered the market and then that changed e-commerce for the whole world probably going forward i think the ant deal sort of was the start of the ultimate end for yahoo uh because Yahoo's yahoo's only real success in it after its initial success was its investment in uh in alibaba and it made a lot of money but it, it, it really didn't make as much as it should have because those Yahoo shareholders should have had their interest in in AliPay in in Ant, which it didn't. The IPO failed, but I think it'll come back. It will. Uh, I don't know if they'll get the value that they once wanted to get for it, but they're going to get a big value, which should have gone to the Yahoo shareholders, and and very little of it will.
1: Well, not just not just them, but then they also screwed over the Alibaba shareholders too, because they get. Yeah, yeah. They get no part of it either. And it, 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 the screwing just continues. And that's not even why their IPO was halted
2: in, in Hong Kong. So, No, I, the, the IPO, I think, was halted mainly because they were trying to, to rush it through before China could crack down on some of their abusive practices. And, you know, they had basically created AMP out of, out of nothing. You know, just taking just basically it was a big Ponzi scheme where you just basically well they take some money then they would securitize that the the loans that they would make and then go do it again and just keep pyramiding that up until they made the thing into something quite huge. And so China came in and said, No, if you're really gonna operate like a bank what you're doing, you need to have the same kind of capital reserves that banks have. Right. And that, and that was and that's a significant amount of money that even though they, they could probably come up with that, it, it just changes the economics significantly.
3: Yeah, I read that on Ant's, I guess, prospectus, they of the short term consumer loans that they had securitized, they only carried two percent of the mm-hmm. of the balance on their balance sheet.
2: Yep. And yep. And, and and everybody thought that was a great thing, but of course that's what eventually collapsed the whole thing. Is that, you know, somebody should have said, Hey, wait a minute, how you think this is so good because they basically they don't have any money at risk, but isn't that really the fundamental problem here? Right. Uh, exactly. And uh so and, and and that's what. and so I think they're gonna have to tell the story quite a bit differently if they're gonna do the IPO again. I think they'll come back in a few months. Well, I mean I, I, I think that shows smaller. you
1: that shows you where you know, the China Communist Party is like, well, you know, if you're gonna screw over Yahoo, that's cool. If you're gonna screw over American Alibaba investors, that's cool, but this IPO could screw over the Chinese here in mainland China, not so cool.
2: Yeah, and I think that was probably why, because the difference between Ant and the other IPOs, even like Alibaba, all the other private companies in China Not all of them, but all the ones of any real substance have chosen to list in either New York or Hong Kong.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: New York being the being the favored location, because Hong Kong was until recently would not allow anybody to use the uh, two-class share structure, which keeps the founder in control. Hong Kong eventually had to, after they lost the Alibaba listing to the New York Stock Exchange, they basically had to relax their rules and allow the uh, allow. Companies with where the Chinese stay in control, even though they they sold down more than half the shares, they've decided to allow that kind of structure. Yeah, and it's funny allowed when you, these these companies to list in to Hong Kong.
1: When you talk about the Hong Kong regulators laxing controls, <laughs> because you know that was kind of the one thing that they you know that dual uh, share class structure that I thought was correct that we didn't do here, but the lack of controls in the Hong Kong market past that are pretty staggering. Really. When you, when you talk about, you know, some of these companies that are 90% insider held 95% insider held. I mean, why are they public? They absolutely control the stock price. 100% you can't buy it or sell it without them being able to move it somehow. And this, this continues to this day. Why is that Paul?
2: Well, I think it, it comes to the history of Hong Kong. Is Hong Kong is really an oligarchy. You know, there are there are a, a dozen or so families that have most of the wealth in Hong Kong uh-huh. and control most of the public companies. And uh, they use a technique. They're not allowed. And So I think the exchange when it came about was, I think, heavily influenced by some of the British colonists who were there. And they wanted to have some reasonable rules to try to keep those those tycoons under some control. So they they imported some corporate governance principles like, you know, one one shareholder, one vote to do it. Now, the the tycoons in Hong Kong were a little too clever for that. So what you find is that quite often a public company in Hong Kong is, it may be, is you'll, if you went all the way to the top, you've got some guy like Li ka at the top, mm-hmm. who, who owns a majority of, his company at the very top. And then that company then has 51% of another company, which owns 51% of another company. And you go down to the chain where, in effect, one guy effectively controls a company that he's got 1% of, because he basically is able to control the vote all the way down the chain to do that. And so that has been the way they've worked their way around it. One of the things I have observed is that the, the Chinese people are incredibly clever, at figuring out how to work within the system. So oh, once yes. they understand how the system works, yeah. they're going to, they're going to find ways to take advantage of it. And you can count on that. So I think one of the great tasks for regulators in every market that deals with Chinese is to try to stay one step ahead of them, thinking about how are they going to figure out a way around this? Cause they will almost always figure out a way around it.
1: Well, circling back and, and, and just kind of like tying off Hong Kong here. you. My thought on Hong Kong and has been that they're, they're basically going to do away with Hong Kong as far as a financial hub and move it all to Shenzhen. I mean, it's really right across the lake, the river, the whatever. And, you know, that stock connect was kind of a first move. Now they've come in, it's no longer, you know, one country, two systems, not even one country, one and a half systems. It's one country. I remember when I first went there in 2014 and I think I was delivered the first live short report at the Sone conference on, on tech pro. And it was a very open conversation. You could criticize the government. You could say pretty much whatever you wanted. You weren't screaming about it. Right. But you could coming back the next year, doing a you know, another report there now lists, like, keep your voices down list. You know, let's at least, you know, have a short, small group of people and and talk about it. You talk 2016, booksellers start disappearing <laughs> off the street, right? Because they're selling the wrong kind of books. and And here we are now. And they're just really part of China. And China is sick of Hong Kong and their attitude. And they would just like it to be a jungle again. And I think in 20 or 30 years, yeah. that's what they'll be.
2: Well what I what I think is happening and and will continue to happen is that is that Hong Kong is going to become another city in China. And you know, it was it was destined to be that by twenty forty seven, which was the end of the fifty year handover period, but it's gonna get there a lot quicker. We've already seen the political systems effectively merging already. I I think what we can expect is sometime in the next ten to fifteen years we'll see the stock exchanges merge, the Hong Kong dollar. Which is pegged to the u s dollar now will be pegged to the yuan, maybe a basket of currencies first, but eventually it'll be the yuan and then eventually the yuan will become the currency there I agree with you, so from there you you left Pricewaterhouse
1: and you became you know one of the foremost American professors in Peking University and this you do a lot of television in China too, which you know yep. Doing doing that here is an art in and of itself in that, you know, you know you can't control the questions, but you can control your answers. But in China, you have to be walking a fine line with lava underneath it when you're. yeah, <laughs> Tell me about that. What is that like for you?
2: Well, you know, I do. I, I, like I say, I think I've had three careers. I had a career with Pricewaterhouse, which went 28 years. I was a partner. I was managing tax partner for Asia, I I took early retirement from PwC. What happened is in the early 2000s, the the global firm, which used to run and own China, decided to give it back to Hong Kong. And the Hong Kong guys, of course, didn't want any of the Americans to stay. They wanted to take it over themselves. So I got a chance to go back to the U.S. I didn't, didn't like the places I was actually went, looked at going back to L.A. And I, I remember telling the managing partner in L.A. that I thought the town was a little small. Uh, <laughs> I finally decided to, to just go ahead and take early retirement. And I went back to school because I was bored. I played golf for a while. I got my handicap under 10. Uh, but then I, that started wow. to become work. Wow. And when it, when it became work, I, I decided I needed to do something more interesting than that. And so I went back to school. I studied theology first because I wanted to do something completely different than accounting. And as I was finishing up my theology work, the faculty was saying, well, you really ought to go get a Ph.D. And I said, I agree. But I said, I don't know that much about theology, even though I've got, you know, finishing a master's degree. I think it would take me five years to get a Ph.D. in, in theology. And they go, yeah, that sounds about right. And I'm going, "Oh, I think I'll go do accounting because I do like the academics of this. I didn't like my my fellow students in in seminary they were there were some pretty weird ones, yeah. uh, there, but the faculty was excellent and and probably religious yeah, they were they were they well they were religious, but they were kind of kooky religious yeah. uh, a lot of them were were just kind of nuts. I remember one time in a in a class on on Islam a student gets up and starts berating the professor saying we should not you know the muslims are evil because they uh, they favor abortion and the professor quite calmly pointed out to him actually the muslims are very conservative about abortion and they're totally opposed a to it. life and the guy goes you lie and he walked out of class you oh, know man. and because it just it wasn't it didn't fit his 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 world view right but the faculty was quite excellent it sounds like uh, a us investor that, yeah <laughs> Some of the greatest minds in history have studied theology, but I decided to go study accounting and I ended up going to an, a university in Australia, wrote my thesis on the, on the development of the accounting profession in China. And that got me, what happened through that, I came up with a couple of predictions in my research. One of them was that the, the, the difficulty of regulating o- offshore listings meant that we were likely to see a lot of fraud in China
0: you are uh, correct so I sir. predicted
2: that and I and I was absolutely right and I started publishing some of my research on a blog that I that I still contribute to the China accounting blog yeah and and and, and that got the attention of of several sets one is the the regulators started paying attention to it so I started getting calls from the PCOB and the SEC to come and visit them and talk about what was going on. And then also a lot of uh, hedge funds and and short sellers and lawyers and and legislators started to read what I was doing. And, And so I became much more better known for what I was doing there, talking about what was going on. And then, of course, then the short selling, all the fraud wave hits China which I had predicted would happen, and it did happen. And so then I was very well positioned to, uh, to take a key role in that. And that got me called back a few times to testify at, in Congress, to uh, meet with the SEC and the PCOB. I joined the advisory board of the PCOB for a couple of years. All very, very interesting things to do. And then I, I followed that up with, that was really my second career, was in academia where I went to Peking University and taught and then did research in this area of transnational regulation of accounting. I then I did that. I've been doing that since 2007. And uh, then I started getting into media and doing, doing more television and radio. Mm-hmm. And so I became a regular commentator on, on Chinese radio and Chinese TV. Which is not just in China, although you know there's a lot of viewers in China that watch these things. I do it in English, and so they watch it to, to improve their English. But I, but mostly it's on virtually every cable system in the world. Yeah, you know China pays to get CGTN on every every network in the world, and they've got radio stations all over the world. So it's it's kind of amazing. I'll be I've been at at poker tournaments in Las Vegas, and I've had somebody. It's sitting at the table saying, I know you, and I'm going, you watch too much late night TV. Because, <laughs> yeah, I do. That's where I've seen you. You've been on late night TV, right? <laughs> and uh, so it's amazing that people actually watch this stuff. No, uh, they... But it is, a, it's a real art because Chinese TV, when you're on a Chinese TV, particularly when it's live, you've got to really think ahead of what you're saying and how it's going to be interpreted. And it's a fine line to walk, because if you become too pro-China, then all the foreigners will attack you as being a China toady. Yeah. And, uh, and if you go too negative on China, you could get arrested. And <laughs> So uh, there's that. One of the, yeah, one of the commentators that, I, that I've been on her show a couple, several times, she's an Australian Chinese, but she's currently in jail. Oh. Uh, for something she said on TV, right. and I don't know if they would throw me in jail or not. And in fact, they tell me I have more latitude than most, and I've never had any constraints on anything that I have said in China. I, I, I you know, we talk in class about Tiananmen Square all the time. Uh, that's not a problem, even though there are video monitors and things on the TV in, in there. And I, because I think as a Peking University professor, you're expected to to be a bit more provocative. You brought up Tiananmen Square. We like big reveals on
1: this show. So this would be a big reveal. What is Tank Man's name?
2: I don't know. You know, and Is you that know, fucking I crazy? That any, I don't think a single of my students, if I showed them a picture, would have no idea what it was. Well,
1: exactly. So nobody knows his name. <laughs> nobody knows, where, where is he today?
2: Well, didn't the tank nobody run over?
1: No, the tank didn't no. run him over. I wish he ran you over. Oh, shut
3: he, We they, can arrange that.
2: I, uh, I did I, have I one, feel sorry for the tank. Yeah. Uh, look, this guy. I was on the board of a Chinese company that had a guy that was actually shot at Tiananmen Square. Yeah, and there, he, was, there was definitely that. But he, like, he had immigrated. He immigrated out of China, went to Minnesota. And he ended up coming back to China because the job opportunities were better. And he was working as the CFO of a Chinese company that was listed on NASDAQ.
1: Yeah, I, there were plenty of people that were shot. And I'm sure like, unless you knew them, you don't know their names. But this is one of the most iconic images, not even of a decade, but maybe even of the century. And and we're talking about a century that had wars, two world wars. Yep. And nobody knows this guy's name. That that That's how thorough the Communist Party is. Nobody knows what happened to him. He did not get run over. He was he was arrested, and ostensibly, look, he's dead. And you, that image is nowhere in China. Are you able to show that image in your class of the Tank
2: Man? I I don't think I have ever shown it, but I don't I, don't, I could, and I don't I don't know. I don't think I would get in trouble because I I think I'm given a, a fair amount of latitude. We have actually on our faculty we have. Some professors who were student leaders at Tiananmen Square, uh-huh. and they're professors today. And I'm told they are far—they go far more, further than I do in class on on criticism. Really? And things. My my interpretation of the thing that I give in class is that basically the students won. You know what the students wanted in terms of reforms is what happened. They wanted to see a prosperous, more open China, and they got it. Okay. Okay. I, I, I think
1: that for a time period, and certainly the opening of China to the U.S. and, and, and that Clinton administration, our hope was that we would even supercharge that and, and make them more democratic. But as I sit here yeah. today, I see that China, like no other country in the history of the world, is able to export a chill on the freedom of speech. In, in universities here. I mean, you're saying you can criticize China in China, which amazes me. Let me tell you
2: something, Paul. You can't do it here, not at a university. No, I, I think if I did it in a, in a, I've taught, I did a sabbatical in the United States and I, I know and I've talked to a lot of classes in the United States at different schools in the United States and there's always a fairly high number of Chinese students in class and they are highly patriotic. <laughs> and if you right. were right. critical of China, you would get your head handed to you, and and so I, I I you know I know how to temper that and basically go into my CGTN mode where I uh, basically <laughs> am as, as fair and balanced as I can be, you know, and to not offend either side very much on that without giving up any but integrity. But the point is, is really a challenge.
1: The point is you're not being offensive. They're they're changing our behavior. By feigning yeah. an offense that I think they're instructed yeah. to do and, and and there's a big yeah, difference
2: I think, I think that's true,
1: yeah, I think there's a big difference between the Asian student from China and our students one you know our our college students are largely entitled little pricks yeah who who think their professors are dumb, and you know our professors are not dumb at the very least and and they, and they have this, like, this little asshole thinks that LeBron James is the most intelligent person in the world, and the guy makes how much money, and they treat me like shit. Yeah. And then you have these Asian students that come over here, and they treat professors like gold. If you're saying the right thing. Oh, yeah. Right? They're extremely flattering to a professor. Is that true? Yeah,
2: it, it was the most amazing thing to me is I used to think being a a, a managing partner at Pricewaterhouse was a big deal. And, you know, that I I thought that was a high-status job. When I got a business card from Peking University as a professor at Peking University, if I show that to a waitress in a restaurant, she treats me like a rock star. Well, right. Right. It is, really? And, and it, it's like, you know, that it is the most prestigious job in the world. And, you know, and, and the, uh, the, the status difference is, is just remarkable.
1: You've been asked for your autograph by these people, right? Uh, some of these students.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, they, how many they American students ask for your autograph? You, yeah. I mean, autographs are not a big deal in China, but they do definitely want a selfie with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How many American students want a selfie with you?
2: Yeah, I never, I don't think I've ever been asked. Yeah, Reed Reed would do it. No,
3: I don't take (laughs) selfies, as Dan knows, now. Now you don't. uh,
1: That is a a very big difference, and back to the point of exporting a chill on the freedom of speech. And they're able to really do it in our universities. I I don't appreciate it at all. I think as long as you're saying something that's true and, and for the right moral reasons, and without prejudice, without any kind of race discrimination for educational purposes, that you should be able to do it. You know, you talk about a a cake baking competition or decorating competition that they had in in the UK. One of the cakes that was entered was supporting the rights of the Hong Kong activists during their time of turmoil. And the Chinese students there got that cake disqualified just, just for supporting it. And that's... That's yep. how far they'll go, right down to a cake.
2: Yellow is the color of protest in Hong Kong because they were using yellow umbrellas. And so things yellow, if you had an umbrella, trying to, if you try to get on a plane from, from the mainland to Hong Kong, if you have an umbrella, they want to see it. Make sure you don't have a yellow umbrella. No, see? And, and I understand yeah. they've been applying the same rule to face masks. -hmm. And I got some face masks before I left left the U.S. that uh, are yellow in color. Don't wear. And I don't dare wear wear them them. in China because I don't know what the reaction would be uh, to wearing a yellow face mask.
1: It's 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 a scary thing, Paul. That that we are becoming more like them after the opening, rather than them becoming more like us. And it is it is an ideological battle over the next twenty or thirty years that I feel
2: like we're gonna lose. Yeah, I I think all that, there's truth to all that.
3: Yeah, I think it's a, I think the Chinese recognized their advantage over the freedom of speech that we have that they don't have in China. So we're, you know, Huawei is allowed to take, you know, get a front page article in the new york times
1: criticizing our our history which which everything they said was true by the way but but you can't do that in china
3: yeah exactly it doesn't work the other way around
2: so no it it doesn't work the other way around and they don't see any hypocrisy in that oh i taking advantage of somebody else's system and not theirs
1: i think somebody as you said you've talked about how strategically intelligent that that their culture is, really. And they're thinking steps and steps ahead. And I think at some point somebody said, you know, freedom of speech is so sacred to the United States and democracies. How do we use it against them? And yeah. the, they are able to use it against us by just having us disagree with each other so adamantly
2: that we well, hate each other. They've been just eating up the political conflicts in the U.S. recently because they believe that it is delegitimizing democracy as an alternative. And they're saying, see, we actually do have a better system. And I think, I would guess, if you polled Chinese, 90% of them would agree with that, uh-huh. that they have a superior system of government. Right.
3: And same with the coronavirus. They, you know, they talk about how, you know, I've seen Global Times and, you know, other chinois whoever point to their ability to lock down Uh, and just completely hammer
1: well paul you have a perspective on this we we had a short chat and you talked about like hey you know one advantage i have right now is i can go do anything i want everything's open and uh, unlike the united states we're not locked down and the reason for that is they take their lockdown seriously
2: Yeah, I was in the U.S. in January and February for Chinese New Year, and I've got a home in California. And my wife went back to China over the objections of many of our friends who thought China was too dangerous at the time. I stayed, I was going to stay about two more weeks and then go back. And during those two weeks, the borders got closed. Mm. So I got stuck in the U.S. all the way until October. Mm. Eventually, I got... During that time, my visa had expired, and China had blocked the entry of any foreigners anyway into China. I was able to finally get a visa to return, which took the it apparently had to be signed off by the mayor of Beijing. It was a fairly wow. difficult thing to get. When I did, I then I had to get a couple of COVID tests. I get on the airplane. I arrive in Shanghai. Everything is. I get another COVID test there. And I'm, I'm taken to a hotel. I was taken to a nice hotel, the Hilton in in Pudong. And I spent 14 days locked in my hotel room. Yeah. They gave me pretty good food. The food came from China Eastern Airlines, but it was kind of business class food. So it was actually pretty good. Uh-huh. And so I spent two weeks in quarantine and then I was released. And when I got released, I went to Disneyland in <laughs> Shanghai, which was, it was quite an experience. And then in Beijing, everything's open. I'd say about 80% of people still wear masks, but everything's open. You can go to restaurants, you can go to movie theaters, you can do anything you want to do here. And that's been kind of nice, not worrying about that. China's had a few cases of imported virus, which is uh, caused by people who are flying in that that apparently catch it between their, their, their test in the U.S. and the time they arrive here. By getting it at the airport. They've had some recent cases from frozen food. Apparently, it'll stick to the package of frozen food, right. but it's greatly under control. And and that's a nice thing to see. But you have to do, anytime you enter a building here now, You two things happen. One, they take your temperature. And uh, two, they, they you have a code on your mobile phone that says, I, I'm green. I haven't been around any COVID people. And if you show that code, and then you're allowed in. If, you don't, if your code turns red, I assume somebody from public health comes and gets you and takes you to quarantine. Right. But that's never happened to me yet. Hopefully it never will happen to me. Who's controlling and, the green uh, and the so red? My, we're, who's what? Who's controlling the green and the red on the phone? Well, I, 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 somehow, some kind of artificial intelligence. I heard a story about somebody who just drove past a market in Beijing that had a single COVID case some months ago. Mm-hmm. and their code turned red yeah. and they could not get it to turn green until they had gone to the health department and and gotten another covid test even though they hadn't even gone into this market wow. they had just driven past it ladies and gentlemen nearby this is what taking it
1: seriously looks like yeah that's what it looks like the artificial intelligence on your phone that you didn't even know existed
3: yeah so they're tracking if you come into contact with somebody who has tested positive for covid even you know within days after well, and it's automatically location you
2: where, where someone someone with covid has been
1: correct oh, right. correct or, or apparently yeah. driving by i mean look i i, I totally get it and, and i'm i'm of two minds and i'm very conflicted about the freedoms that you give up but yeah. i think I think this could be a very, very big problem for us too. I mean, if you talk about any kind of kinetic warfare or any kind of actual warfare, China completely understands that they can deal with a pandemic with four to five times as many people as us much better than we can. And talk about how do you devastate an economy because, you know, China looks at warfare, you know, not Holistic. just kinetically,
0: right? Holistically.
1: Well, I mean, they look at it like economically. I mean, the, and which was ironically the way we beat Russia, right? Through economics. And if you can hurt us in that way, that that's a big deal. And, and we've really just taught China that any kind of pandemic could really hurt our society much more than theirs. Where you'd not notionally think that could happen with their 1.4 billion people. Have you heard anything about that, Paul? Do you think they got that mindset at all? Has that occurred to anybody there? Well I, I think I
2: I don't I don't think I personally don't think that China is looking for world domination, but I do think they're looking for world respect. And that is they want their seat at the table and they don't want anybody telling them what to do on anything. But if they're provoked enough, I think they they will be a very fierce opponent. Yeah. And they will use any trick in the book to do it. Yeah, And and I think they've got tricks up their sleeve that you haven't even thought of yet. When you look at some of the peaceful demonstrations of power, like I was at, I saw recently a drone show in China where they were flying drones like fireworks with lights on them. Very beautiful. Yeah. You know, 20,000 drones up in the air, all coordinated by some computer to do it. Think about it with all those things were coming after you with little machine guns or something. You know, it would be uh, impossible to stop.
1: No, I and and they obviously know where you are. I mean, at all times. And, and when yep. I mean you, I mean you. I, I think they probably yep. have enough technology to know where I am today. Yep. And you know, people are in, in the United States. So, you know, I'm back sure they're listening in on this as we record. It. Oh, listen, pal. There's no doubt. Uh, going <laughs> I deal with it. Yep. So, back to the investing in the markets. You know, where I became aware of you, was, you know, short selling, and your blog. And you're, look, look, you are religious about your blog and that has brought you so much attention as you have said from regulators and everywhere else. And and I encourage everybody to, to read Paul's blogs, go back and read all of them back, back to 2012, because he's pretty religious about putting at least one blog a month in there. Don't be turned off by the fact that it's, a, it's, it's pre-WordPress and probably done on MS-DOS. It's that... <laughs>
2: But, it's actually it's actually done on a Mac on a Mac software that's no longer sold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: there you go. The content is it, you know, stems from, you know, hey, just asking a question, posing a question, and saying, hmm, to actual analysis of maybe what a short seller has put out or a long investor has put out or or what's happening with the latest IPO. And you have you have really followed short sellers as they've activist shorts as they've entered the market in China. What's your take on it today?
2: Well, I think the, the low-hanging fruit was harvested yeah. some years ago. Yeah. And the it started to get, it, one is it's difficult in part because we've had a bull market and mm-hmm. short selling is hard into a bull market. You know, you're you're really fighting uphill and, and that makes it more difficult, but we've had this long bull market. Well, but that's why also, you have to be an
1: activist market, short, Paul. That That's why I'm, I'm distinguishing between like a short seller, who's an, who who doesn't you know agitate for their position, yeah. and an activist short who says, "Look, I'm short. Here's why fraud, material misrepresentation, or whatever it is, and agitates for it." That's that's where you entered in as well. You entered into that fray, kind of grading at times who's right and who's wrong, or what's right and what's wrong with a report. Do you, what about the activist short-selling part of it?
2: Well, the activist short-sellers, I think have, they had a, a lot of success early on because there were some, it was such a target-rich environment, mm-hmm. uh, particularly among a lot of the smaller companies that had been promoted into the market and were just not really at all ready to be public companies. And you know, I, I remember hearing stories about some of these companies going to auditors and, 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 and the only question they really wanted from the auditor was, what do these numbers need to be for well, us to I to be yeah. an IPO? Yeah. Not not what are and the auditors would go, you know, well, they ought to be what the numbers are. Yeah. And then and then you can find out whether you can do an IPO. And they're going, No, 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 we'll just make the numbers whatever they need to be. Just yeah. tell us what they need to be. Yeah. And and that was the mentality uh that went into that. Now most of those companies I think got got uh taken down early the easy ones because the, some of those frauds were just so obvious from the face of it that all you had to do was say this one's a fraud and it, and it was it would just it would just implode because and and the big problem usually was they had faked the cash balances and so they'd fake revenue that had ended up on the balance sheet as fake cash mm. and that turned out to be actually once auditors learned how to audit they that was easy to find and are easier to find. Well, that's that's still and, the case uh, today, so that, Paul.
1: That's still the case today. I mean like I see what you're yeah. saying about the low hanging fruit. I you know, I put out cameras on on you know, you know, uh longway petroleum. You know, they don't have 50 trucks coming in and out a day. There're seven weeks they had yeah. five in seven weeks. That's the low hanging fruit that's kind yeah. of gone now. But the or the or the yeah. or the fake website that you know, has your to, to a bank that's showing fake cash balance. That
2: was the best one. That was one of the best <laughs> frauds I ever saw where an auditor actually caught it. Yeah. You know, it was actually one where the auditor caught where the, uh, they, had been, they, they were told to go to the bank's website to check out the, the thing in the bank, the auditors in the, in the CFO's office and actually looking at the bank website on, on, online. And then the auditor goes back and finds out the interest rate on the CDs didn't match the standard interest rate that the government had. Uh, the, the, there's
1: the, uh, literally dozens of those stories. And, and, and you know the stories, right? Where, you know, even at some point in time, you, you see the auditor say, okay, I'm going to get serious with you and we're going to go to the bank together. And they're like, sure. And you go to the bank together and they paint off the bank manager because there's no skin off their nose. Yeah. They're not going to get arrested. It's not illegal in China to steal from a U.S. investor. Yeah. So yeah. they take them into conference. room. The an, bank manager it's an, actor, it's an actor.
2: It's just some friend of theirs sitting in the bank. Uh, yeah. waiting for them to come yeah. in. That's that was a common one. And, yeah. you know, the the auditors got, got better at doing these things, but they still, I think, are still getting conned sometimes because it's hard to, it's hard to prove. And, you know, China should have gone to electronic bank confirmations years ago, but hmm. there was obviously resistance to do it. Yeah, and I which, could never quite figure out the resistance because they could have made so much money on it. You know the banks and the regulators could have charged a, a quite a bit of money for that. Well, access. it would it would have and, impeded uh, the fraud, Paul.
1: That's right, and that's probably what happened, right? Yeah, I mean, look, they, you can't you can't be smart and stupid in the same conversation with China, right? Like they skip over credit cards and go right to cell phones and QCR codes, but yet they can't do the electronic bank confirmations. That's too hard, right? That they try to be smart and stupid in the yeah. same conversation and. I'm just not buying it, and the fraud is—it it ends up the same today. Fake cash on the balance sheet a lot of times, but they've—they've they've really gone to most things on the internet, and they understand that we here follow American law. I mean, I don't necessarily concern myself so much with Chinese law because it's a floating, moving target, and who knows? But in 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 any law, you can't you can't breach somebody's server. And find that information behind their server. So it's very, very tough for us. And we've had to employ some pretty smart web engineers to figure out this fraud, but it's still pretty pervasive, I think. What do you think?
2: Yeah. And I, when I, what I see also is a change in, in the companies have gotten bigger. And as the companies yes. have gotten bigger, they've also gotten a lot more sophisticated. Yes. Uh, so it used to be the frauds were kind of often kind of amateuristic now I, what i see is a lot of really advanced accounting stuff where they're they're they they're doing more enron style taking full advantage of the rules right and whether the thing will actually be sustainable or collapse at some point is another another question but you know they they clearly have got some really smart people working for some of these companies so what do you think of
1: of the holding public companies accountable act or the kennedy bill that you know i think we both agitated for over the past 10 years you're you're a movie star so you know we we had that it it really largely goes to the you know the long top financial case and deloitte not being able to send their audit paperwork to the united states and now they're trying to fix that so it brings me to two questions what do you think of the legislation and you know talk to our listeners about how Pricewaterhouse, Deloitte, KPMG, any of them are not Pricewaterhouse, Deloitte, KPMG in China. They're a charter, which is not the same thing.
2: Yeah. Well, this kind of goes back to to Sarbanes-Oxley, which came about as a result of Enron. And, you know, Sarbanes died this week. So that was the the end of an era there. But I'm really a a fan of Sarbanes-Oxley because I think it did reform accounting. Accounting was self-regulated before that, which is a problem. I think we 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 see that self-regulation of any profession tends to become more of a trade association and not really a regulator. Yeah, exactly. So they 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 improved that. And the, and that formed the Sarbanes actually formed the public company accounting oversight board and it told it that it needs to inspect all auditors that audit US listed companies. And and that includes any auditor anywhere in the world. And so they started out, and and most of the focus, of course, is on U.S. auditors, particularly the big four, which are inspected every year by the PCOB in the United States because they do more than 100, uh, 100 public companies. I think that has really changed auditing. Now, if you talk to auditors, a lot of them complain that they think they've made auditing a very unattractive business. They made a ton of money in the last 20 years from Sarbanes-Oxley, but they complain about the the oversight and the penalties and the the rigor that you know the PCOB's inspections have been pretty tough because they've failed half of the uh, audits that they look at. Now, maybe they get too picky sometimes. I don't know. But I I think it, on balance, it's been a good thing. When they tried to come to Overseas, they got blocked almost everywhere right away. Foreign countries said, ah, "We're not having any of this." U.S. regulators enforcing their rules on our in our country. So the EU blocked it. Then the EU finally backed down and said, "Okay, we'll let every country decide their own." And the PCOB ended up negotiating with virtually everybody, and in the world, the the last holdout was China, and China took two arguments. Uh, the first argument was that allowing a foreign regulator to regulate Chinese companies on Chinese soil would be an infringement on China's national sovereignty. And we did this before, once before, during the, after the, during the opium wars, after the opium wars, and it didn't work out very well for us, so we're not going to go down that road again. The other argument was, well, these audit work papers might contain state secrets, and we can't disclose those state secrets to foreigners. Now well, that second argument was actually always pretty weak. One, there was no rule that said they couldn't do it. There is, there is a rule now. They put one in place, yeah. even though they didn't have one then. But also, almost all the audit partners on these overseas-listed Chinese companies, American-listed Chinese companies, were foreigners. So they already had foreigners looking at all this stuff. Right. The accounting firms were all supposed to be inspected. China wouldn't allow the inspections in. Now, the PCOB took a curious and I think erroneous position initially. It allowed these auditors in China to register. So when you look at the big four in China, they are not the big four that you think of in the United States or anywhere else. The big four are a collection of franchise operations. They all use the same name, but they're owned by the partners in each location. So every country has different owners. There's not cross-ownership between the United States and the UK or or China or anything else. So the Chinese firm is owned by Chinese partners in China. And they have to and, be Chinese uh, majority. Yeah. The, uh, and they have to be a majority and, 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 owned uh, by they Chinese. Have to, they have to be a Chinese majority. Legally in the audit practice it's a Chinese majority, although in practice it's really they, they combine the Hong Kong firm and the China firm and, and mm-hmm. treat it all as one firm. Okay. To deal with that. The so they're really not That they're separate firms, and so the 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 U.S. firm is not when they doesn't really set the standards for China, but they do have some overarching groups, and they do a lot of coordination, a lot of quality control reviews between the various countries. But no partner in the U.S. can order a a Chinese partner to do something. Yeah, that's not the way the system works. And very few people here uh, know that. that the PCOB always had the ability to say no. If you want to be listed in the United States, you have to use an auditor that's registered with the PCOB, and if we're not going to register anybody with the PCOB unless we can inspect them. But the PCOB didn't do that, and that allowed this whole mess to to come about. it festered for 20 years while they negotiated to try to find a settlement, couldn't find one. Eventually, the SEC sued the big four, saying, hey, you got to give us the work papers, and they said, no, you caught us between a rock and a hard place. We are, you know, if we if we give you the work papers, China says they'll throw the partner in jail and uh, and throw the firm out of the country. Right. Uh, So we can't we can't break Chinese law. But and but if we don't give you the work papers, we are breaking American law. So which law should we break? And so they told that to the judge. Well, the judge said, you know, you should have thought about that before you got in there. But if you're between a rock and a hard place, it's because that's where you chose to live. You didn't have to start auditing U.S. listed companies. You wanted to do it. And now you want to throw yourself on the mercy of the court because you are breaking the law to do it. Uh, So he basically threw the book at him, and then they negotiated a a settlement where the big four paid a half a million dollar fine each uh, (laughs) and the problem went away. Then the PCOB was able to negotiate- Their problem went away. Our problem continued. Our problem continued. So then the PCOB negotiated took a half a loaf approach, and and, and negotiated a deal where they could see work papers in connection with investigation. So the PCOB does three things. They set the rules for how companies are supposed to be audited. They inspect the auditors to make sure that they're actually following those rules. And then they enforce the rules if somebody doesn't follow them. The, The most important part of that is the middle part, the inspection, to see whether or not they're actually following the rules. And the enforcement part is not the most important part, but that's the only part they got. And, and it, that didn't work very well, even though they got it. It didn't work very well. And so they've continued to negotiate. And then finally, Congress got into the act. And Congress, there were several proposals in Congress to basically ban companies that couldn't be inspected. They were kind of jumping on the, the Trump trade war at the time. Now, the last one, the Kennedy bill, will basically kick companies off of the U.S. exchanges after three more years if, they, if, if China does not allow inspections. Now, I, don't, I think China will finally agree to allowing inspections. That's how I think this thing will ultimately get resolved, uh-huh. is that it, it, China's already made some offers to allow inspections. I think the PCOB says the offer that China's making is not acceptable although I think it's consistent with the arrangements with a lot of the other countries. And I don't think they can expect China to agree to anything that other countries haven't agreed to as well. So, I, But I think they'll reach a settlement before that three-year period is done. But what Biden says is that he wants to leave Trump's phase one trade deal in place until he reestablishes diplomatic relations or relationships with our allies so that we can do a multilateral approach to dealing with China. Multilateral is, doesn't apply to this accounting issue, but I expect that China will concede to allow inspections as part of the settlement of the, of the deal with, with the phase one trade war. But I think that might be a year to 18 months out before we get a settlement. And we, that could get us at a time when people start getting really nervous about whether or not that bill is actually going to come into effect and kick these companies off the exchanges yeah i've I, heard that there are a lot of chinese companies now rushing to do ipo yeah. because they want to get it to the market before this becomes a big issue
1: our, our market yes oh okay well okay well they can ipo here but then in, they're they're going to have to i think abide by that law which really doesn't fix the overarching problem that it's not illegal for a Chinese citizen to steal from an American citizen, right? So you still have that binary proposition. No, and
2: I and I think the you know in one that's one of the problems is that when we look at at for all the frauds that have taken place in China, mm. until we get to Luckin, the the Chinese government showed no interest. Mm-hmm. in pursuing any of those frauds. And I've had discussions with, with senior officials with the Chinese government about that issue. I said, why don't you prosecute some of these things? Because there have been situations where auditors have been kidnapped. If you kidnap mm-hmm. someone in China, that's a violation of Chinese law. And they said, well, the problem is it's all, it all comes down to prosecutorial discretion. And the prosecutors don't want to bring those cases. Right, And, you know, the cynic in me says that's because they don't view foreigners as people. And so stealing from from foreigners is not stealing from people. So it's not really a crime. Right. But now with Luckin, that seems to have changed. They decided on Luckin that they would actually go after them. We'll see what ultimately happens. But I would not want to be a Luckin executive right now.
3: Do you think it's possible that they don't want to go after these companies because... High-ranking CCP officials actually profit from these frauds.
2: There may be some of that, but I don't, I don't, I really don't think that was been the driving point. I just, think I, I don't they just Okay, felt it wasn't really part of their interest. It wasn't something they were interested in. Okay, no. it, it it had no political benefit at home to doing it, so why do it?
3: Hmm. Yeah. Fine, financial
1: benefit. Yeah, people disappearing in China is or getting kidnapped is a, a little more common than. Than people think it is. I mean, I remember the first time it was actually NQ that I heard about a chairman of a company just disappearing, and mm-hmm. and everybody in China just kind of shrugs their shoulders and they're like, "Yeah, okay, you know, that's Tuesday." It, it, it's amazing that they'll just they'll just pick up the chairman of a company and and they don't get to speak to anybody for two weeks, thirty days, whatever. You have no idea what's going on, and nobody seems that concerned about it.
2: That happens for fairly minor offenses. I mean, I've known people who have gotten caught drunk driving and they take you to, uh, they take you to jail. They don't even call your family. Yeah. Uh, they just take you to jail, throw you in the drunk tank and, and leave you there for 30 days. And the, your family finds out about it when they call to report you're missing. Yeah. And they say, oh, he's actually not missing. He's in, you know, he's in <laughs> drunk tank number three fifty six. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, we've got a long way to go. We really do. And I think, I think people just need to be aware that, you know, Pricewaterhouse or, or KPMG or Ernst & Young, gee, wow. Well, they, they, they really stepped in it too. Are not, are not the A team in China that they, they, you might think they are here and past that. I think an auditor will tell you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Paul, but they don't view it as their job to catch fraud. They 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 no. view it as their job to to review the financial statements that the company prepares. They don't prepare them; the company prepares them, and and they review them for the veracity and
0: truth.
2: I mean, auditors, you know, we're trained, and I've been trained my whole life to basically know that audits are not designed to catch fraud. Auditors basically uh, rely most heavily upon the representations made by management, and 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 the. The foundation of that is how, what is the integrity of management? If management doesn't have integrity, then you can't trust any of the statements that they have. So in their client acceptance processes, they try to focus on the integrity of management, but that's very hard to do. And in chi- then they go through procedures that are basically done to verify what should be true. And, and in the case of, of cash audits was, I think, one of the ones that went, went wrong completely. Cash is something that you audit when you are the first, before you know your way to the bathroom, you, you get to audit cash, because it's, some, it's the easiest thing to audit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has been done the same way for over 100 years. And what you do is you get, get a copy of the bank statement, you write down the balance on the bank statement on this confirmation form, which is the same form used all the way around the world. The only difference in one in Chinese is, in China, as it's written in Chinese. You, you then mail that to the bank, the bank, the bank gets it and the bank must go, these guys are idiots because of course that's the balance on the bank statement. And they write back and say, yes, that is the correct balance on the bank statement. And then you do, from that, then you determine what should go on to the financial statement. The problem is they never. the whole basis of Western auditing is based on the assumption that there is a separation of duties that you verify something with with somebody who's not directly involved with it and that fraud is difficult to do because it requires collusion. Two people have to work together to commit a fraud. And, And in the West, it's viewed that collusion is very difficult, so therefore that's a control that works. In China, what it was proven over and over again is collusion is actually very easy to do because of the nature of relationships between bosses and subordinates and the, the nature of guanxi, the, the relationship capital that people build with each other, yeah. uh, is that it's much easier to get collusion in China than it is to get collusion elsewhere. So it was much easier to fake a bank statement and to fake a confirmation or to get somebody to to hide something it still is uh, it was just much easier and harder to find, and it still is and and so then China, and this is the problem that when Westerners came and brought auditing to China because it came from the West, huh. the methodologies all came from the West, and they were not modified to deal with Chinese business practices and culture. And uh, I think they have been slowly modified as they've become more aware of what's going on. I think they're doing a much better job than they were doing 20 years ago when I arrived here, but it's still, it, it just, it's just harder to do in this environment, even if you know what you're doing.
1: Yeah. And, I, and to your point, I will say that, like, we taught these China-based companies how to commit fraud on the U.S. capital markets. I mean, they, they may have taken it to the next level here today as, we, as we're as we 15 years down the road. But, you know, you know, thinking of Yui farms, a Chinese chicken farmer doesn't wake up one day and know how to defraud the U S capital markets. We taught them how to do it. And now they're making it an art form. So we reap what we sow. And with that, Paul, I, you know, I I'd say that like you are fascinating guy to talk to on a lot of different levels. I'd really love to have you back on the show, even in smaller formats, like to discuss your blog. You know, I don't know that you're, your blog is always as well disseminated as I think it should be. And you know, 15 minute, 20 minute discussions about what you have to say every month, or it would have been great to talk to you right after the Luckin scandal hit and, and give investors yeah. some intelligence where that's concerned. And, and more of your history can come out there cause you can't just get it all in, in one show. I think that you're somebody everybody should follow. Paul's got a woefully underfollowed Twitter handle, and it's uh, China Accounting Blog, right? Is it? What's the Twitter handle, Paul?
2: At at Professor Gillis is at Prof Gillis is my uh, Twitter name. Okay. And uh, China Accounting Blog is my blog. They can find it either way, either one of them, find find their way to me. Yeah, I follow you. Everybody
1: should. So
2: do I. You do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If you're interested. Notice, Carl doesn't follow you,
2: Paul. Oh, I'm which, a follower.
1: Don't which, worry. Which, which, yeah. Yeah. he actually does. Which is uh, okay. All right. Well, that doesn't explain the dumb questions. <laughs> anyway, that's an internal Carl, do you, problem. Do you have anything any, that you want to just leave us with? Words of wisdom, or maybe something in your history we didn't cover?
2: No, I think you know. I think I think the China market is going to continue to be very interesting. I think the next couple of years will be very interesting as we try to uh, figure out how to fix the tremendous tensions between the United States and China I don't see them going away i I think china's rise and China's feeling its oats and it's really changing things is that is that it's China knows this is its time to to lead and and it wants to it's it's chafing at the bit to take that leadership and yeah. I think we're going to see some big changes one i I think the one to watch really is the maturation of the Chinese capital markets yeah, yeah because I think Chinese companies will start to to focus more on listing in China as Ant was doing and and I think they'll you will start to see some less use of the US markets after that but and I think that happens regardless of of how this Kennedy Act finally comes into effect
1: I I agree with you wholeheartedly they're they're going to domestic consumerism and they're going to domestic you know financial domestic finance and listings as well so Paul thank you for joining us and to our listeners thanks for listening If you like what you heard, leave us a comment, give us a retweet, follow us on Twitter, and uh, don't forget to follow Professor Paul Gillis on Twitter as well and his China accounting blog. Thanks for joining us. Can't wait to our next show.